At this time, we're going to look at the living Word of God. Um, if you'll open your copy of the Scripture, Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. Verses 1 through 12. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James. Also the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. But these words appeared to them as nonsense and they would not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen wrappings only and he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. I'm using as a subject for these verses, uh, resurrection confirmed. Resurrection confirmed. Christians, you can be confident that your faith in Christ is grounded in reality. His life, death, burial, and resurrection actually occurred. They are not a fantasy a myth, neither something concocted by his followers, but is a fact of history. Luke, uh, the writer of this gospel, was a historian. This gospel is a historical account about Jesus Christ, which includes his resurrection from the dead. In his prologue, that is, verses 1, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, our author gives us his historiographic, historiographic method used to write his record about Jesus. In f- chapter 1 of Luke, and if you'd like to turn there, you may. I hear the pages turning, and it's a good thing to check out the preacher, make sure he's telling you the truth. And so when Luke began to write, he lets us know his method of collecting the information which is contained in his gospel. He says, first of all, in verse 1, to compile an account of the things accomplished among us. To compile an account, he's talking about historical writings. That's not all. He interviewed some people. You see at the bottom of verse 2, who are eyewitnesses and servants of the word. He is talking about the apostles. Verse 3, and he investigated everything carefully from the beginning. That means he did research. 
He crossed his T's and dotted his I's. He got the details right. In fact, modern historians say that Luke was a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy, this author should be placed along with the greatest of historians. Luke's excellent skill as a historian is the human component of the gospel. But it is the divine element that sets his work apart from purely secular histories. If you know anything about secular histories, there are mistakes made. There are errors in fact. But Luke's history is not like those histories. What sets his apart from those written by mere men, unaided men by God, men who are writing with their only, only thing is their skill and their education, is this. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All scripture is God-breathed. The ultimate cause of scripture is God. Because he is the ultimate source, its ultimate source, it is without error. God doesn't get the facts of history wrong. He can't err. He cannot make a mistake about anything. He is not like us. We're limited. We're finite creatures. We can overlook something. We'll miss something. Something will escape our notice, but not with God because he's omniscient. He knows everything. And because he knows everything and nothing can escape him, he kept a fallible Luke with all his skill from making a mistake about anything that he wrote here in the Gospel of Luke. Our text here is, as Luke says in verse 4 of Luke 1, the exact truth about the things you have been taught. That's what our passage is. It's the exact truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You can look at it again in Luke chapter 24, and you can see the exact truth that's penned here and left here for us. And the first thing we're going to look at is the exact truth of the confirmation of the empty tomb. What you need to know is this. The followers of Jesus were not expecting him to rise from the dead. They weren't expecting that on the third day the tomb would be empty. We know this because the women, they went to the tomb with their spices prepared to anoint his body, to retard the decomposition and the effects of it, uh, the effects of the decomposition of the corpse, the corpse. They didn't expect the tomb to be vacated, but occupied. That's why they went. And they went on the first day of the week, after the Sabbath, after it's permissible. They went early dawn, and they came to the tomb bringing their spices, which they prepared there on the first day of the week. Jewish people did not name the days of the week as we do. They numbered them in relation to the Sabbath. There, there are seven days in a week. The Sabbath is the seventh day. The day after the Sabbath began a new week, and it was numbered the first day of the week. The first day of the week is Sunday, the, this day. Christians meet and worship on Sunday. The reason we do it is to honor our Savior who was raised on the third day. So every Sunday when we show up here to worship, what we're saying is we are celebrating and honoring our Savior who was raised on the first day of the week. They get to the tomb. They're expecting the tomb to be occupied. 
And when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. That's an amazing reality for them. Uh, they wondered how in the world this has happened. I'm going to skip along here and tell you how it happened. The stone was rolled away. The women, in fact, they wondered how they were going to move the stone. They wondered how they would get this extremely large stone away from the tomb so they could go in and anoint the body of Jesus. According to Matthew chapter 28, an angel descended from heaven and an earthquake occurred and he rolled the stone away. Moreover, I think I need to tell you this. In the Gospel of Matthew, the parallel account of the resurrection, this is helpful to understand the truth of the resurrection is confirmation. Do understand that there was a cover-up. You may think cover-ups are a modern invention. No, they're not. <laughs> Men have been covering up the truth for a long, long time. Matthew chapter 28, and we can see the truth here. This event, the angel descending from heaven, the guards were there, Roman guards. They fell out as dead men. The stone was rolled away. When they came to, uh, they had to tell um, their bosses what happened. Matthew chapter 28, beginning at, at verse 11. Let's look at the story. Now, while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priest all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a, now get this, a large sum of money to the soldiers. And they said, you are to say, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. How do you know that they did it if you were asleep? <laughs> the improbability of it is uh, that couldn't happen if you were asleep. How do you know? Well, it's a lie. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story is widely spread among the Jews as it is to this day. Let me tell you, the enemies of Jesus Christ knew that the tomb was empty and they employed a lie to cover up the truth about it. The guards knew the tomb was empty. The, the leaders knew the tomb was empty as well. So they come to the tomb. But in God's providence and his power, the stone had been rolled away. Now, you need to understand something. The stone was not rolled away to let Jesus out, but to let the women in. Jesus did not need the stone to be rolled away for him to exit the tomb. After all, he had been raised powerfully from the dead. He had conquered death. We also see in his post-mortem appearances that he passed through solid objects as we walk through the air that envelops us. Nothing could keep him in the tomb. Now when they get there, verse 3, they entered. They did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. The women did not find what they were expecting. To their surprise, they found what they weren't expecting. Jesus' body was missing. Think about it. That's why we know this is true. That's why we know it's a confirmation to the women who were not expecting to find the tomb empty. So there's the confirmation of the empty tomb by the, res um, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ leaving that tomb. The next thing, the confirmation of the resurrection from the angel. 
We see it here in verse 4. Now think about this. The women, they were perplexed. The text says that, right? They couldn't understand why is the tomb empty. The word perplexed means they were at a loss as to what had happened to the body of the Lord Jesus. Now I'm going to tell you right away, they didn't think, oh, he's been raised from the dead. No, that did not cross their minds. In fact, comparing the gospel accounts, we learned that Mary Magdalene, one of the women who was there with the other women at the empty tomb, she had thought, according to the the word of God in John's gospel, that someone had taken the body away and laid it elsewhere. John chapter 20, verse 13. So they weren't thinking he had been raised. No, they were thinking uh, she was, that somebody removed the body. The others think we don't know what happened. And then in verse 4. Behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. Hmm. These men are angels. They're not ordinary mortals. We know they're angels because Matthew 28, 2 and 3 tell us they were. Angels will take human form when they interact with human beings. And you notice their clothing was dazzling. The Greek word behind that is to flash like lightning. They were terrified, shown off. If all of a sudden you're there at a tomb and you don't know where the body is and there are two men standing there and their clothing is dazzling or flashing like lightning, that would scare you too. And as the women were terrified, they bowed their faces to the ground. Verse 5 tells us. And the men said to them, here's a rebuke. They're getting ready to now lay out to them what happened. Here are the angels. They're going to confirm why the tomb is empty. They're going to confirm that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. And you need to understand something about angels. Angels, that word means uh, messenger from the original language. They are the spokesman for God. And they rebuke the women. It's a mild rebuke, but it's a rebuke nonetheless. Why do you seek the living one among the dead? Right there, they're informed that Jesus is alive. He's called the living one. He is the resurrection and the life. John eleven twenty five. Out of love and devotion for Christ and mourning his death, the women meant well in bringing spices, but now get this, they were in error. They exhibited a lack of faith. Jesus had told them he would be raised from the dead. That they had not believed it. And before you condemn them, think about this. We go astray that way as well. We fail to believe what Jesus says, do we not? We demonstrate that by our own actions and attitudes. We, We doubt the word of God. And that's what these women had done. And then they continue. The angel does. Verse 6. He is not here. But he has risen. Hmm. He's been raised by God from the dead. He will never die again. He is the first fruits of those who were raised. 1 Corinthians fifteen nineteen says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who are asleep. Those who are Christ by faith in him will be in the resurrection harvest when he returns. Earlier I talked about the reality that all who believe in Christ, we will be with him. We're citizens of heaven. Do understand that we're going to be resurrected in this great harvest when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. 
His resurrection is massively important to all of us who are believers because what it tells us is that our sins have been forgiven. If Jesus had not been raised from the dead, we would still be in our sins. 1 Corinthians 15, 17. The fact that he is alive means that our faith is not worthless, that our faith was well placed and that we have our sins forgiven. We're right with God and we will spend eternity with him because Jesus Christ shows it to be so by his resurrection from the dead. That's the wonder of the resurrection. How important the resurrection is for people's eternity. How important the resurrection is for eternal destiny. The resurrection of Christ. That's why it's so important to talk about that. And that's why we as Christians talk about it. You notice no one here in this fellowship has talked about any eggs. We haven't talked about an Easter bunny because those things are utterly irrelevant to the reality that Christ Jesus has conquered death. He has been raised and he's alive. And what people do with him determines their eternal destiny. That's how important this is. And the world likes to play it down. The world likes to hold it down. They don't want to face the reality, but I'm going to tell you what, this is a reality everyone must confront. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is alive. He is called the living one. It's who he is. He is risen. He's not here. And the, the angel continues to tell the ladies. Notice in verse 6. How he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee. He had said it more than one time. That he would be handed over as the text says. And he would die on, on a cross. And he would be raised. And here the angel quotes our Lord in verse 7. Saying that the son of man. The son of man. That's designation of Messiah. He is the divine Messiah. This is self-referenced by Jesus. He's talking about himself. He says, I, the son of man, must be delivered into the hands of sinful men. Now, let me stop uh, for a moment and tell you something here. This is going to give us some information about God and his role in this in a wonderful way. You see that word must? That means necessity. The divine necessity that the events that took place in Jesus is being handed over, delivered. His crucifixion, his resurrection was all planned by God. In fact, that word delivered there in our text, in New American Standard, in verse 7, in the original indicates that God allowed Jesus to be delivered to sinful men. Understand that. God was superintending all of that. When Judas came with all of the people who were with him from the the Roman cohort to arrest Jesus, do understand it was God who was permitting that. Because it was necessary, it was God's plan. That word crucified, God permitted them to crucify Jesus. It's all part of his plan. Third word here, rise. Men didn't have anything to do with that. God did that. God raised him. God was in control from start to finish. The first two actions, the delivering over to sinful men, the crucifixion of Jesus by sinful men, that they are responsible and accountable to God for their sins. But it was God's supernatural power that raised the dead Jesus back to life. 
The words rise again do not mean a second time, by the way. The word rise denotes to cause to stand up or rise. Uh, when people are dead, they're, they're laid out, right? You notice they don't get up and go anywhere. They're laid out. When Jesus died, they, they laid him in a tomb. And so to say to rise again means he would stand up again. And so will we. One day we're going to stand up again. We're going to be laid in the coffin if we're not cremated. We're going to stand up again. Even if you're cremated, God's going to put your body back together and you're going to stand up again. That's what's going to happen to all who know and follow him. So the third day he rose from the dead. Now the angel said, Jesus told you this was, this was a prophecy. This was predicted, ladies. You heard him say it. So he prophesied, I'm going to have this happen to me, but I'm going to rise on the third day. And so what you heard was a prophecy. Now what you're looking at is history. Prophecy was fulfilled. It's a historical fact. And they remembered Jesus' words. Verse 8. The confirmation of the resurrection by the empty tomb. The confirmation of the resurrection by the angel. Third thing, the confirmation of the resurrection reported. Now they've just heard. They've seen the empty tomb. They've been told by a supernatural being, an, an angel from heaven, what had happened, the messenger of God. And now they're going to return from the tomb, verse 9, and report all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. They're going to go tell the apostles what they've seen and what they've heard. They're going to deliver this message. And you'll notice something here um, in the text. All these things. They tell the apostles, Peter's there, James is there, John is there, Bartholomew is there. All, the, all of them were there. They said, guys, the tomb was empty. There's an angel, two angels, and they told us why. They told us about Jesus' words about his death and resurrection. All of that took place. Now, Luke says who the people were, the women, the major ones, Mary, Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James. These women saw the empty tomb. They heard the message that the angel said. Who is Mary Magdalene? She was uh, delivered by Jesus. Seven, seven demons delivered out of her. She was a follower of his. Mary Magdalene is reported to have seen the resurrected Lord and held his feet. John chapter 20, verses 16 and 17. Jesus was physically raised from the dead. Mary is the mother of James, the apostle, the son of Alphaeus. There are other women there as well. And they report to the apostles. Now notice something. Here's the report. These words appear to them as nonsense. The apostles didn't believe it. Peter didn't believe it. John didn't believe it. James didn't believe it. It's nonsense to them. That word nonsense transla translates to Greek leros and can be rendered idle talk. Luke, who wrote this, was a physician. 
And the term was used in medical settings of the delirious talk of the very sick. When these women were relating all of this, the men were thinking, you guys are delirious. That didn't happen. Verse 12. Peter, after hearing all of this, believing his idle talk, believing his nonsense, he decided to get up and go and check it out for himself. Now the question has to be asked, why would Peter do that? He characterized their talk as nonsense, but now he wants to get up and uh, go check it out for himself. I'm going to tell you why I think he did it. Luke chapter 5. Why he decided to go and see if the things that the lady said were so. Luke chapter 5. Peter was a fisherman, wasn't he? He was a professional fisherman. He knew about fishing and how fish are caught. In Luke chapter 5, it says, Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake and he saw two boats lying there at the edge of the lake. Fishermen had gotten out of them and washing their nets. They were done for the day. Jesus gets into one of the boats, verse 3, and asked Simon to put out a little way from the land. He sat down and began teaching. When Jesus concluded his teaching, he said to Simon, this is Peter, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Now you do understand that Jesus... His occupation was that of a carpenter. And he's telling a fisherman about what to do. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing. But I'll do as you say and let down the nets. And Peter may have been thinking, this is nuts, it ain't going to work, but I'll do it because he said so. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. And they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. Isn't that interesting? All night Peter had fished. Had caught nothing. Jesus in his boat said, let down for a catch. He didn't say you might catch something. He said, let down for a catch. Indicating you're going to catch something. He didn't catch two or three or four or five. Like some fishermen say, well, I had five on the line. And No, no, no. This is a massive catch. You know what I think happened when Peter heard from the women? He began to think, oh, yes, I remember uh, Jesus told me one day to let down my nets. And that I catch fish. And sure enough, I did. Luke chapter 22. Why well, I think Peter got up to go check it out. Luke chapter 22. And we want to look at verse 61. Remember, Peter had boasted about, of all these uh, defect, Lord, not me. 
He's quite confident in his ability to be faithful to Jesus under that tremendous pressure. No, no, no. I want Jesus. Oh, Peter, Peter, Peter. For the cock crows, you'll deny me three times. It's another statement that Jesus made of an event that would happens, happen later. Luke 22, verse 61. The Lord turned and looked at Peter because in verse 60, he denied the Lord. Man, I do not know what you're talking about. Verse 60, immediately while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him before. A rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. Peter had some experience with remembering what Jesus had done. He had, and he remembered what Jesus had done in these incidences, and he learned that I got to trust Jesus' words. Now in Luke chapter 24, verse 12, linen wrappings, verse 12, Jesus ran there to the tomb and saw them. Grave robbers would not have left them behind. Grave robbers would have taken everything out of the grave if they were stealing the body. John chapter 20, verses 6 and 7, lets us know and it suggests to us that before Jesus left his tomb, he rolled up these things and placed them where they are or were. So what does that tell us? This is all confirms the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why believers can trust it. But let me say something to you if you're not a Christian. You may accept or be convinced by the historical evidence for Jesus' resurrection. But that is not enough for salvation. The Bible is clear what is necessary. What is required. Romans 10 Verses 8b through 9 says this, The word of faith which we are preaching, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Let me unpack that briefly. You must confess with your mouth that Jesus as Lord, that is, you say, yes, I say the same thing about Jesus that God says. He is Lord. He's sovereign. And believe in your heart. God has raised him from the dead. To believe that God raised Jesus from the dead means that you identify yourself with the one who purchased redemption by his work on the cross. You say, I believe indeed that what he did on the cross is true. He has purchased redemption and he was raised to share his eternal life with those for whom he is Lord and Savior. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a historical reality, but it's a personal reality as well. It's a personal matter for every single human being. What will you do with the fact of Jesus' resurrection? Two ways you can handle it. And receive him as Lord and Savior. Or will you refuse him 
and die in your sins. Those are the only options. There's no other way. You can say, okay, he may have been raised from the dead as a historical fact and all of that. Yeah, yeah, they saw that, but whatever, I'm going by my life. But let me tell you something. You have to apply it to yourself. It's personal. You must respond in faith. If you do not respond in faith, you'll die in your sins. If you die without Christ, you'll die unforgiven. And you'll pass into eternal judgment. I'll tell you, the resurrection of Christ's momentous moment in human history. None comparable to it. If Jesus had remained dead, you could blow Christianity off. You can say, it's fake news. But it's real news. What will you do with the Savior who was raised from the dead? Father, we thank you for the, uh, the truth evidences provided from your word. We thank you that uh, you save those who will trust your word, will believe what you say about your son, who he is and what he has done. We pray that those who, in this room who have not turned themselves to you in faith and repentance will do so. We ask you move their hearts, move their wills to yield to him. Uh, thank you for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The inescapable reality that he is alive forevermore. And all men one day will stand before him. Oh God, I pray for those who are not his. They'll terminate their rebellion against him and you. And turn for salvation to Jesus Christ. Believe in their hearts you've raised him from the dead, that he is Lord. We pray you do that, that they may be saved. We ask you to do it for your own glory and for their joy. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.